Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or... If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Now, last week I went on a quest. Um, It had long been an ambition of mine to visit the grave of J.R.R. Tolkien, Uh, author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Um, And with this new Amazon series coming out, I thought, what better time? So I set off from my home, left my home, my beloved home behind. There was a tube strike, so I had to walk miles and miles and miles. Then I had to get on a train. It was very crowded. I had to stand the whole way. Then Tolkien's grave is the north of Oxford, so I had to walk all the way up there. I was about a mile away from the grave, and by now... The burden of my quest was feeling very, very heavy on me. And I could well have abandoned it altogether, were it not for the fact that about a mile from Tolkien's grave, I met up with my loyal retainer, a simple countryman of humble yeoman stock, Dominic Gamgee Sandbrook. And Dominic, in my hour of need... I needed the solid yeoman strength that only you could provide. And what was your response to my suggestion that we go and visit Tolkien's grave? I suggested we went for steak and chips instead. <laughs> <laughs> you did. And we did. And then, after we'd, and then after we'd had it, after we'd had lunch, you had a car. <laughs> so you could have taken me there in your car. And did you do it? No. 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 I no, but I mean, no. to be fair, Tom, we had to have our photos taken. I, I, I think it's Mr. Tom, actually. <laughs> your bodyguard no his guard no. so anyway so so uh so so yeah so we so we actually uh, so we met up in oxford last week um and uh, obviously oxford is a place that is hallowed by the memory of J.R.R. tolkien um who is the subject of today's 
episode prompted by the fact that, as I said previously, that uh, Amazon are doing this. Uh, well, it's a kind of prequel, isn't it, to Lord of the Rings? Um, yes, that's right. And the Hobbit and all that kind of stuff. But Dominic, I think before before we tuck into uh, Tolkien and, and and all that kind of stuff, we should absolutely recognise the fact that there are lots of people out there who've never read Tolkien and. It's not just that they haven't read Tolkien. They militantly don't want to read Tolkien. <laughs> they yes, despise right. everything about it. The dragons, the elves, all that kind of stuff. So um, just to give some um, obvious examples, we had Judith Downey. I have not read the books. I did see film number one in my role as grandmother. My question is, can you bring to bear your customary wit and wisdom? Charming, Judith. Oh, that's Thank nice. you for that. That's nice. Sufficient to maintain my interest for the interminable number of episodes you will inevitably produce. And we had... Uh, Richard H. I have never read any Tolkien. Is he really that significant? And if so, why? Dominic, is he really that significant? Yes. Um, so this is a history podcast. Um, and so let's say right at the beginning, um, it's not a sort of Tolkien. I mean, though Tom and I m- may prove to be Tolkien enthusiasts, may reveal ourselves to be Tolkien enthusiasts. It's not a, a Tolkien enthusiasts podcast. Um, and it's absolutely aimed at people who love the books, but also people who have no intention of ever reading a single a single word. And the reason, the justification really, Tom, is that um, Tolkien is a significant historical figure, I think for two reasons. One, just very starkly, his book, The Lord of the Rings, is the single best-selling English language book of the 20th century. And therefore, presumably, I mean, certainly not. Probably the world. In the world. Yeah, so I think probably the world. I think there might be some Chinese contenders. Um, but certainly in the West, uh, The Lord of the Rings stands alone, really, as the by far the most successful book, probably the most influential. If you went into the any bookshop in Britain, America, Australia, you could take out probably scores, if not hundreds of books, that have been very, very clearly directly influenced by Tolkien. And, and so work. the question is, why has it been so successful? Exactly. So the question is, why so successful? But also, I think the, the second reason why it's interesting is that Tolkien – I mean, he's he's obviously a historical figure. He's somebody who was born in the 1890s, came of age just before the First World War, fought in the First World War at the Battle of the Somme, and and, and after that had actually a pretty quiet life, as we'll go on to discuss. But his books are a brilliant window, I think, into understanding the preoccupations and anxieties of going from the late Victorian period through to the Cold War. So... Anxieties about about war, about technology, about industrialization, about the changes to the landscape. So they're seen as prefiguring the environmental movement, for example. I mean, there's a there's an awful lot there. There are a lot of threads to to unpick, and all of that without really we don't need to talk about. I mean, we don't actually need to talk about a single elf. If you're an elfophobe, don't worry. <laughs> I think we will talk about elves because I would say there's a third reason why Tolkien is a, a valid and interesting subject of study. Um, and that is quite aside from the fact that he's a, a kind of colossal um, British cultural icon. Yeah. So we've already done, we've done the Beatles, we've done Ian Fleming, we've done Agatha Christie, we've done George Orwell, all of you. Yeah, Sherlock are Holmes. Sherlock yeah. Holmes. So, so they are all massive British cultural figures that have also had a global resonance. Um, yeah. But Tolkien is far more than any of those. He is, a major, major scholar of key aspects of history, specifically the languages of yes. the early Middle Ages, of, of the German, the German languages in particular, um, yeah. but also of the history. And so his 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 perspective and his views on early medieval language and on the history of that period 
is also, I think, worth looking at. So I think that's a third reason. To- yeah, I mean, just to go, just to to qualify that a bit, Tom, or to or to amplify it, Tolkien is the single most important person to have ever written about Beowulf. They're kind of, in many ways, one of the great founding documents of English literature and of the English language. Tolkien is the man who basically brought it into the into the limelight, into the sort of scholarly limelight. Yeah. So if, if, even if he'd never written or w- published a word about Middle Earth and all that sort of stuff, he would be remembered by scholars as the man who had basically put Beowulf front and center. So that makes him interesting too, especially when you think the bloke who, who, who d- sort of, as it were, rediscovered Beowulf is also the bloke who fought at the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. I, I mean, you could, but you could go further and say that certainly in the English speaking world, Tolkien has probably had a greater influence on how the Middle Ages are popularly understood than anyone else in the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, to, well, if you could draw, you could draw a line from Walter Scott through yeah. Tolkien to Game of Thrones on TV right now. Couldn't yeah. You? So Walter Scott, I would say, would be his only rival as someone who has influenced the popular understanding of what the Middle Ages were like. Yeah. So I think for all those reasons, he's he's absolutely a valid um, subject of study for a history podcast. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I think precisely because he does kind of generate animus as well as devotion, um, it's probably worth our while just describing the kind of the parabola of our relationship with him, which is actually quite similar, isn't it? So presumably you read him as a as a boy. Yes, The Hobbit first. Um, I first encountered The Hobbit on Jack and Ori. So um, some listeners may remember Jack and Ori that ran on the BBC where people read bits of stories. So I read The Hobbit and then I read The Lord of the Rings. I think I'd read The Lord of the Rings certainly by the time I was about 10 or 11. Um, and, and, and like a lot of people who read it at that age, especially sort of small boys who love stories of battles. Nerdy and history boys. Yeah, nerdy history boys. Thank you, Tom. Um, I immediately, it, it became enshrined right away in my mind as the best book as the best book ever I had, written i had yeah absolutely and, and and of course do i still think that <laughs> no but i but it's probably still my sentimental favorite you know it would be my comfort read and and actually i'd never thought about it in a sort of critical way at all until about i was probably in my 20s and i read a great scholar called tom shippy yeah, um, a, himself a great scholar of Anglo-Saxon, who succeeded to Tolkien's um, to Tolkien's professorships. His, yeah, so he's professor at what was it, the Bosworth something Bosworth Rawlinson yeah, and Bosworth in Oxford, professor of Anglo-Saxon. Right, and he basically wrote a, a couple of books. One which said Tolkien's work is all rooted in his scholarly study, in his study of languages. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And then he wrote a second book called J.R.R. Tolkien, Author of the Century, where he was talking about Tolkien. As a twenty, as a very specifically twentieth-century writer, as a, a writer of the World Wars and of the Age of Modernism, and I found that absolutely fascinating. And since then, I've I've thought, you know, how how odd it is that Tolkien suffers from the condescension of sort of academic posterity um, when he's so clearly a really, really interesting character and writer. I was going to say when I say so when I read the, the Tom Shippey book on author of the century, I think he calls him that, doesn't he? Because there, there'd been a poll. Um, of the general public in 1999 to find out. Tolkien who, always the, wins these polls. And Tolkien always won. And lots of kind of uh, literary taste setters <laughs> yes. were indignant about this. And I remember reading and thinking, this is such a Sandbrook theme. <laughs> 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 He'd be so on Tolkien's side against whoever it was, sticking up for Virginia Woolf or whatever. Exactly. Tolkien has always suffered from this sort of, I mean, I remember 
when Tolkien won the, um, I think it was the Waterstones did an end of century poll. And he won, as he always does, by a canter. And Germaine Greer Germain was Greer, quoted right. saying, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have dreaded this, you know, I've dreaded this moment. I knew this would happen. And I sort of thought, well, isn't it interesting then to say, well, why did it happen rather than yeah. just to bemoan it? I mean, that the interesting question is why? And we'll go on to discuss that. Later but on. it's very you saying, you know, sound of music outside Sergeant Pepper. It's the, it's the <laughs> classic Sandbrook maneuver. Um, so I, I, I was also, I loved the Hobbit, but I had a particular reason for reading Lord of the Rings, which was that my father was, um, his first job as a solicitor was in Oxford and he had to take Tolkien's will to him. So he took him to, um, Tolkien had this garage and they went in and discussed the will. Um, and, uh, and also the other thing is that we lived, I think for the first few months of my life, we lived in a village called Brill, which is um, east of Oxford and means, so it's Bree Hill. So Bree is the- Bree uh, appears in the Lord of the Rings, isn't it? And of course, Tolkien died quite a rich man, Tom. So his will was a document (laughs) of some consequence. So anyway, so so my father, who who was aware of him, but had never read him. And so when I said I wanted to read Lord of the Rings, he he was quite keen. And so we read it together. Um, So I have that as, you know, it's kind of very- it's great memory for me. And I read it again and again and again. And then I kind of cast it aside as I would childish things. That was very much my feeling. And I didn't, didn't think about it anymore and felt faintly embarrassed about my, my childish enthusiasm. But then um, I guess two things made me kind of reawaken my interest in it. Um, and the first was writing um, about the early Middle Ages. So not just about the, all the kind of the Viking, the Norse myths and things, which are yeah. incredibly important to the fabric of Lord of the Rings, but also um, all kinds of historical episodes, sieges of Constantinople, sieges yeah. of Augsburg by the Magyars, all this kind of stuff that suddenly I understood where all these elements in Lord of the Rings were coming from. Kind of like the the mingling of different themes that you get, say, in TSA, it's the wasteland. And we talked about Tolkien as a kind of 20th century author. I think there's really strong element of that. It's just that he's drawing on much, much more obscure reaches of history and language than, say, Eliot was or someone like that. And yeah. then um, and then when I wrote Dominion, I, I needed someone that the theme of Christianity and the horrors of, of the, the Second World War and the Third Reich and all that kind of stuff. And I actually thought Tolkien would be perfect for that because, of course, he was a very devout Christian. He was very devout Catholic. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really, really important part, not just of how and why he comes to write what he does, but actually I think also of his appeal. Um, so maybe come to that later. So yeah, his book is, um, his books have a, once you see it, you can't unsee it, the kind of yeah. spiritual dimension to them, I think. So as preparation for write, for, for, for writing that chapter, I reread Lord of the Rings for the first time since I must have been about 13. And I was stunned at how much I had missed, uh, stunned at, at how clearly it holds a mirror up to the horrors of the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Really, really in a really fascinating way. So I'm sure yeah. we'll come to that. Let's start with Tolkien. So our plan for, for, if for those listeners who haven't deserted us because they're terrified of elves, um, <laughs> is we'll talk about Tolkien and then we'll go on to talk about the books and the themes. And, and this is a two podcast job. So, um, gird your loins. We ride at daybreak. It should really be three. <laughs> so on and so forth. It? It should be well, it should be a trilogy. Although yeah. Tolkien himself hated the Lord of the Rings being described as a trilogy because he yes. conceived of it as as a single work. Anyway, listen, we don't want to disappear into nerdishness too soon. So yeah, let's start Tom by talking about Tolkien. And funnily enough, for a, a very English, for somebody who believed himself to be an intensely English writer and who whose whose dream was to create a mythology of and for England, 
he had a, a German surname, so he's a Germanic stock. I think his ancestors came from Gdansk, well, Danzig, didn't they? Well, uh, only one side. Yes, so his that's father's right. side. That's uh, right. But his mother's side, Suffield, came from uh, Evesham. They're Midlanders. And so Tolkien totally uh, parked on one side, the um, the German side. It was all about the fact that he, he'd come from Mercia. Yeah, but that's understandable when you get into his family history, as we will. But the other thing that's interesting is that he's not actually born in the Midlands or indeed in England. He is a, he is a son of empire, actually, because he's born in, in South Africa, in Bloemfontein in um what is it 1892 and his father arthur very uh very good victorian very telling name a sensational moustache yeah um worked in a bank didn't he he was a very i think it's fair to say a very unglamorous man <laughs> yeah yeah the banker of rohan it doesn't so they <laughs> so they had moved out to south africa um i, I think i guess they got married in cape town his parents yeah, so he, so Arthur was working out there to begin with, and then Mabel, yeah. who was his mother, Mabel. went out to join yes. him. Um, and they, yeah, they, so they got married in Cape Town, had a honeymoon, and then settled in Bloemfontein, which Arthur loved and, and Mabel hated. Yeah, and actually, so she she hates it so much that um, when so he's christened John Ronald Rule Tolkien. So when young Ronald, as he's as he's called, as friends call him, or John Ronald. When he's about, what is he, about three, yeah. um, he's just turned three, Mabel decides to go back to England. And he's got a younger brother by this point as well, Hillary. Yes, Hillary. Is it Hillary? Yes, it yeah. is Hillary. With Hillary. So off they go to, to England. And the plan is that Arthur will join them, basically, as when he's, I guess, served out his notice with the bank or, or whatever it is. Um, and that plan does not work out because he dies of rheumatic fever before he's able to, before he's even basically boarded the ship. So suddenly Mabel is back home in England, a widow, exactly, with these two very small boys. But what's important then for, for Tolkien's story, and indeed for the genesis of his, of his fiction, is where they live, because they live in a place called... Have you ever been to uh, Sarehole, Tom? Have you been to Sarehole Mill and no, all that sort No, of? I haven't. But um, I've actually been reading quite a lot about it, and I now want to go. So it was a village in what was then North Worcestershire, um, on the fringes of Birmingham. Birmingham, the great Victorian city, Joseph Chamberlain City, pumping out smoke, sees itself up as the first city of the empire, a massive kind of urban leviathan, the din and the clash of industry, <laughs> exactly great wheels turning, yeah, and they're on the fringe, they're on the and and Tolkien and they grow up in this little village, where it has a, a sort of a mill with a water wheel and little copses where you can run and hide and meadows and streams. And it's completely idyllic, but it's also obviously completely threatened and indeed doomed by the expansion of the city. I mean, I think one of the, re it has, it obviously has an absolutely seismic effect on Tolkien. And he says, I mean, he claims that he remembers it coming to it because he also remembers being in South Africa. And so he, the, the it's the contrast that makes him fall in love with England, he says. Now, that may, may well be a bit of a kind of myth-making, but there's no question that he feels very, very emotionally tied to the, to the trees, to the mills, to, to, to everything that evokes the beauties of rural Warwickshire. And as you say, the fact that it is menaced by yeah. the encroachment of industry is, is hugely important. And that's a big theme of, of English life, by the way, in the 1890s, 1900s. Lots of writers at the time wrote about this. So H.G. Wells is the classic example. He writes about what happens to Bromley 
um, sort of southeast London swallowed up by the expanding city. And that's a big theme of kind of Edwardian letters. But also the reason I think Tolkien has this incredibly sentimental attachment to this place, which is basically for the prototype for the Shire, the places hobbits come from in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, I think is because he loses it um, before he's entered his teens because they move out of um, Soho. They end up moving closer and closer to Birmingham. And then his mother dies when he's 12. Yeah. But one of the, one of the reasons why they, well, two reasons why they move. One is because um, Tolkien's very, very bright and he is going to King Edward's. So the, the, the best grammar school in Birmingham, which is in the middle. So it's a long way for him to walk otherwise. So they have to move in closer, but also it's because, and again, this is a key influence on Tolkien. His mother, Mabel has, converted to catholicism so they need to go yeah. to a catholic church and so that's the other yeah. reason that they move and she falls out with her family doesn't she her family she does, really take yeah. against her who, who are methodists methodists and yeah i mean really not keen on popery and and so i i think the young tolkien experiences this as a kind of you know the fall yes and he goes on absolutely. to say that every story is the fall the idea of the fall from grace, the fall, the loss of paradise, that's a really important part of his, of his fiction. And it's a sort of, again, I think that's, um, this idea of a, of a green and pleasant land threatened by industry and by the city and a, and a falling away from a sort of prelapsarian state of grace. That is a very common theme of British writing of the, in this, in, in this densely populated urban imperial society, industrial society at the turn of the 20th century. So he's orphaned by the time he's, what, 12? Um, and he and his brother become wards of a, a Catholic priest called Father Morgan. And they basically end up moving in with an aunt, don't they? I mean, to give yeah. people a sense, anybody who knows Birmingham but doesn't know Tolkien, um, they basically move from the, the sort of England's green and pleasant land, sort of, you know, woods and babbling brooks and stuff. They move to to, to what is now very close to the five ways roundabout in the centre of Birmingham. So this kind of huge clamour and industry and factories and all that. It, it, I mean, it, as a as a kind of literary arch- archetype, it's not just Edwardian, is it? I mean, this is kind of Dickens. This is off to the blacking factory kind of yeah. level of trauma, I think. Yeah, and 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 also, of course, also you have in Dickens the the, the trauma of of being orphaned of adults as oppressive figures and as you say the young tolkien's go off to stay with their aunt who is a very unsympathetic figure and then they end up staying in a um with, with another woman who's equally who's equally i think not not maternal but they there, seem tyrannical they sound tyrannical don't they all these they're sort of rolled doll that's, aunts, that's kind of they? david copperfield yes yeah, so or rolled <laughs> yeah. doll it's that kind of quality um but also lodged um with with uh with with the second of these rather tyrannical aunts is um a girl called edith bratt who is not at all a brat. She's a, no. she's a very quiet, calm, clever girl who's very, very good at the piano, um, three years older than Tolkien, and they fall madly in love. And the, the but priest, banned, the father. The priest, the priest is not having it at all. No, not having he bans them all. from seeing each other, doesn't he? And they can't communicate or something for three years. I mean, an absolutely extraordinary thing to do to teenagers. Um, but Tolkien's quite a, he's a very serious person. You know, he's very intense. And I think that's, true throughout his life and he takes a lot of teenagers just say sod you you know yeah, i'm gonna I'm see off but but no he takes this quite he i think he breaks the vow once to see her or to communicate with her but otherwise absolutely adheres to it and i think the reason for that is partly because uh father francis has independent means and is is helping to keep the boys so he feels grateful for that doesn't want to uh, yeah. offend or upset him 
And I think also he's, I mean, you know, he's very, very devout Catholic and feels, yeah. in a way, he's already getting into the idea of quests and romance. So he's passionately devoted to Arthurian literature, all that kind of stuff. And I think he feels that this is a test that he and Edith have to go through. Yeah, he's quite idealistic. He's very idealistic. Yeah, and in due course, he will mythologize their relationship to spectacular effect. Yeah. Um, anyway, but what that does mean is that now that girls have been parked to one side, he can focus on doing what chaps do, which is play rugger and hang out with other chaps and talk about um, scholarly things, languages, (laughs) stuff like that. So we said he went goes to the school, King Edward's Birmingham, long-established, famous, prestigious um, private grammar school. And he joins, I think there's two organizations that really matter. And if you want to read more about this, I know we both um, read and hugely enjoyed the books by John Garth, um, yeah. he, he wrote a fantastic book about book about Tolkien at the Great War and the Great War, which is not just about the Great War. It's also about Tolkien and the Edwardian period and the school that he goes to. And one of the things he joins is the cadet force. So this is a very Edwardian thing. So Garth has found this photo that shows Tolkien in 1907 um, at, at the age of 15, um, looking very pale and very serious in his military uniform. Uh, on the day that Field Marshal Lord Roberts, the great hero of the British Empire, the man who'd won endless victories, who'd won the Boer War, he comes to visit the school and all the boys are lined up and Tolkien is right there. And, you know, they are being trained for war. They 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 have a sense that a, a war is coming um, and that Britain will be tested and that they will be tested. Every Everything they do at school really is preparing them for this. On the As you said, on the rugby field, this sense of, you know, camaraderie, doing your bit, being part of the team, all of this stuff. And Tolkien play undoubtedly... Up, play up, play the game. Play up, play up, and play the game. Tolkien undoubtedly takes this very seriously. And I think the empire and the serving your country, serving king and country, is a huge part of his worldview, actually, even if it's unconscious. I think it could not be otherwise. Well, I mean, just a, a reminder of... Because Lord of the Rings ends up being the toast of hippies in, in the 60s. But... <laughs> yeah. You know, one of Tolkien's earliest and most vivid memories is of um, uh, is of Sarehole being lit up with bonfires and fireworks to celebrate Queen Victoria's jubilee, and yeah. that will feed into the opening of Lord of the Rings. So, you know, he has a long life, and and his roots in this pre-war society are really, really strong, really intense. Yeah. But already, he is also starting to inhabit a, a very distant world. So. I think, isn't he, 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 he does, he trains on horseback and he's not actually very good at that, but he's had experience of kind of riding with cavalry. So mm-hmm. that's something obviously that stays with him. And he's also, I mean, he's doing Latin and Greek as, as all boys of his age and, and, and class at a grammar school would do. Um, but he's also become obsessed by Germanic languages. And so they do, they have this school play where everyone has to, to talk in Latin. But he turns up and talks in Gothic, which Gothic. Is I mean, that's pretty precocious for he was for seventeen or something. Yeah, <laughs> there's virtually nothing left. He's not even. I don't think. He, I think he finds got gets into Gothic possibly even before that. I mean, he's even younger. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. There's virtually nothing written in Gothic that remains. It's a sort of loads of bits of it are lost, and he becomes completely obsessed by it. Yeah, and he's got this group of friends, hasn't he? They meet. Um, they meet for tea, and they meet in a place called Barrow's Stores in a department yes. store. 
So it's a tea club and barrow store, the TCBCs. Sorry, TCBSs. A tea club Barovian society, I think they call themselves. And there's four key members, and he's one of them. And they are, when you read John Garth's book and he reproduces lots of their letters and so on, I mean, they're very, by, by, by adolescent standards, they are intensely idealistic. Are they aesthetes? There's a bit of that about them. Um, but they're not just aesthetes. So they, they're looking back to, to the world of the sort of the Norse and the Anglo-Saxons and so on. And in that, they bear the imprint of the Victorians, don't they? I, I think that there's actually quite a hostility to the idea of being an aesthete. So in due course, Tolkien will be a great enthusiast for baggy tweed and all that kind of stuff. I think yeah, it's a, yeah. a kind of conscious desire to have nothing to do with that side of ship. As also, so we had quite a lot of questions um, saying Tolkien's doesn't seem to be tremendously interested in women. Uh, we might come to that later, but but women don't feature prominently in Lord of the Rings or indeed in The Hobbit. Um, and I think that the fact that he has Edith as this great romantic object of devotion I mean, she's incredibly important to him, but in a way, precisely because he's he's got that sorted and got bit marginalised, he can now focus on just hanging out with chaps. Yes, which yeah, and, sure. and that kind of very intense masculine camaraderie, which is a very Edwardian thing, isn't it? Yeah, he, it he buys into is. that hugely, um, and so in due course, he gets a scholarship to go to Oxford. He goes to the same college, Exeter, as two people who I think are excellent kind of precursors for Tolkien. So one of them very famous William Morris, the great kind of Victorian yeah. polymath. Uh, we talked about Morris's show, show, isn't he? To yeah. Iceland in yeah. <laughs> holiday well, podcast. And of course, Morris, Morris is the person who really makes the Icelandic sagas and things trendy for idealistic younger people in the decades that, that follow. So in, in other words, of Tolkien's generation. And the other person who, went, who also went to King Edwards is the painter Edward Byrne-Jones. And he's obsessed with, you know, the medieval, with King yeah. Arthur, with all that stuff. There are, he's a pre-Raphaelite. Is that, and, yes. and that idea of a group devoted yeah. to high-minded medievalism is absolutely something that Tolkien and his friends buy into. So it's it's more than a hobby for them. It's a very common thing in late Victorian Edwardian British culture, this revulsion from industry and from the machine age and from urban modernity and this sort of idealization of a lost world of knights and paladins and maidens. And I mean, you see that everywhere in late Victorian culture. An incredibly in, intense experience of friendship. Um, so yeah. two of them go to Oxford, including Tolkien, two of them go to Cambridge and they kind of meet up at regular intervals. And it's this, so one of them's a poet, one of them, Tolkien, is, is thinking of becoming a philologist. Um, one of them's a painter. I mean, it's, it's one of them's a musician. It's this idea that they will, you know, they take themselves very, very, very seriously. Um, yeah. And the fact that they all equally, you know, they all take themselves seriously and they all sustain each other in their sense that what they're doing is important, I think is, you know, <laughs> well, especially when you think central you know, to their, they're 19, their they haven't done anything. Yeah, they've done and they're nothing. just writing poems to read at their little meetings. <laughs> yeah. But as you say, they, to, to them, everything they write is sort of loaded with this sort of cosmological um, importance. And Tolkien is already writing some of the stuff, I think. So 1914, he writes the first, what what looks now like the first fragment of this great corpus of legends. That do you have it? Um, I, do you have the Do you have the um, the old English? I don't have the old English. Are you going to read it, Tom? Yeah. Go on. Yeah. So this is from a, You've a come poem by Kinewulf called Christ. Eala erendel engla bertast of a mittengard monem sended. 
So that's uh, Hail Eärendil, um, brightest of angels, over Middle Earth. Uh, you have been sent to man, to mankind, to men. So, so that's not Tolkien, is it? That's Anglo-Saxon. That's Anglo-Saxon. But the question is, what is Eärendil? And Tolkien is pondering this in 1914. Whereas he's on the lizard, I think, isn't he? He's on a holiday in the lizard somewhere, somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, and he he wrote about it in a kind of fiction, a piece of fiction that he published later. He says, "I felt a curious thrill." So reading those lines, I felt a curious thrill, as if something had stirred in me, half wakened from sleep. There was something very remote and strange and beautiful behind these words, if I could grasp it, far beyond ancient English. Um, and that question of of, of who or what Eärendil is haunts him. And in one level. It's it's Christ, but in another yeah. level, maybe it's you know it's the morning star or the evening star. It's a star that enables navigators to follow as they sail out into the Atlantic. And so he he writes his poem, doesn't he, in which Eärendil is a mariner, kind That's of right. setting yeah. out across the, the the ocean, rather as as the Irish saints had done. And I think if if Tom, if history had played out differently, we wouldn't be doing this podcast, and we wouldn't be this poem would be utterly forgotten. But that very summer, that's the yeah. summer of the assassination of Sarajevo, of the slide to war. And I think it's the First World War and what happens next to Tolkien that completely, it doesn't change his trajectory, but it gives it a charge Toughens that it would it, not doesn't it? otherwise have had. And it's yeah. that, I think, that is the, the defining and the seismic moment in his life. And I think we should come to that after the break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about the life and times of J.R.R. Tolkien, and we've got as far as the First World War. So Tom, Tolkien's instinct when war breaks out, interestingly, is not to rush to the battlefront, is it? Because he's very conscious that he wants an academic career, and he doesn't want to rush off and, and jeopardize that and not graduate and not get the qualifications he needs. So he leaves it a year or so, and he starts to get hints from his relatives. I notice well, everybody else is at the war. Where are you, what are you doing? But he, I mean, he basically, he signs up, but he can put it on hold. Yes. So there's no question that, that once he's finished his degree, he will go. So he gets his degree. He gets a, a very good first, which means that he will be able to pursue an academic career uh, should he survive the conflict. But in 1915, he is commissioned um, and he joins the signals. And uh, Gordon Crowe will be very excited to know that among all the other skills that he learns as a signals officer, uh, he learns to handle pigeons. Oh, right. So that's so, horrendous. If you're interested in pigeons, if you have come to this podcast for Tolkien, we have pigeons for you, uh, yeah, would well, you believe, but, in the rest of history's back catalogue. But, I mean, if you think about um, Lord of the Rings, there's quite a lot of birds and, and uh, <laughs> sending messages and things like that. So, um, Tom, I'm going to drag you back from pigeons. Don't get into another pigeons podcast. So he's joined I mean, the 11th Lancashire Fusiliers. Because his friend has Christopher, is it Christopher Wiseman? One of them has, one of the, the TCBSs. Has, yes, has, yes join the Lancashire Fusiliers. So all his friends have joined up, the whole little group of them. They And they believe in the war as a slightly idealistic crusade, don't they? You know, they believe a new Britain will be created at the end of the war and it'll be their responsibility to do it. And um, so Tolkien and co get posted to France. He, him, his battalion um, in the summer of 1916, and just big, in time. Yeah, a big push for the, is being for the For the show that is being planned near Albert, which turns out to be the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. Um, and he's not there on the first day, but one of his friends, uh, Robert Gilson, is, and he is killed on the first day of the Somme. One of the 20,000 people, uh, British um, soldiers who are killed on the very first day. And then Tolkien himself is is inevitably drawn into the, the horror. Um, and in John Garth's book, which we were talking about in the first um, part of this episode, you know, he describes they're going into trenches littered with bodies, you know, body parts, the mud, 
the the rain, the horror, the you know, and for a young man, for an idealistic young man who's basically spent far too much time reading Finnish grammar books, <laughs> this must have been an absolutely searing and indeed life defining experience. Yeah. And he has he has an you know he he's at the cutting edge of a number of seismic developments in the history of warfare that will then have obvious echoes for anyone who has read the novels or seen the films. So he is uh he's there on the fifteenth of September for the debut of the tank. Yeah. And tanks, you know, when you think of the great battering rams and the dragons and all or these- the or the huge elephants, that's something. But but also he is he's there while the Red Baron is doing his stuff in the air overhead. Oh I hadn't and, thought of the Red Baron. Yeah, being, so the yeah. so, so the, the Red Baron is is you know becoming the 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 great fighter ace of the uh, of the air um and basically enables the german air force to win control of the battlefield so that sense that there is danger in the air which again is something that you you get throughout tolkien's fiction the sense yeah. that that danger lurks there um and in due course it won't be you know it's not planes but um, witch kings on pterosaurs is what it'll be. But I mean, it's 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 pretty clear that the the you know the inspiration for that sense of terror isn't just you know medieval literature. It's clearly coming from his experience on, in in the trenches. Um, and as is also, um, the hobbits have to go to this land called Mordor for complicated reasons we won't go into. For those who haven't read the books or, or seen the films, but he has to, to get rid of the ring and thereby destroy evil by dropping it in a volcano, the crack of a volcano. Very complicated reasons, and and Mordor is a land of darkness and horror. And um, and Tolkien said later about this that the war, so the First World War, made me poignantly aware of the beauty of the world. I remember miles and miles of seething, tortured earth perhaps best described in the chapter about the approaches to Mordor. So yeah. I think that that sense of the earth being tortured, which had been f- floating there really ever since, you know, he moved to Birmingham is, is enhanced massively, of course, by the spectacle of what the horrors of war are doing. That's right. The landscape well, there's a chapter the called the, um, the dead marshes and, uh, the, the heroes, Frodo and Sam, they see the, 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 the swamps are full of dead bodies. And and obviously that clearly comes from the experience of somebody who was on the Western Front in 1916, who saw the fields, the puddles, the gullies, the trenches littered um, with British and German bodies. And, to get, and actually, Tolkien once said that um, the, the real theme of the um, Lord of the Rings was death. And you can understand why, because if you look at the figures from his school, King Edwards, 243 boys were killed in the First World War. From his Oxford College, Exeter, 141 young men were killed in the First World War. And Tolkien himself could easily have been killed, but he was fortunate. I mean, it seems weird to say it because he he, he contracts an, a disease which could conceivably have killed him, which is called trench fever, which he gets from lice, doesn't he? Um, so you're bitten by the lice. You, you get this kind of very severe kind of flu. Um, I know it's not flu before doctors write in to complain. But anyway, he's invalided out. Um, and basically his war is kind of over from that point. So he's invalided out in, I think, the autumn of 1916. And then he spends the rest of the time recuperating. So we should say, we, should, we, we forgot to mention that he had married Edith. He'd become betrothed to her in 1914 before the war. She had become a Catholic. He'd basically... You know, that was a non-negotiable. She had to become a Catholic. We had a couple of people commenting about that, saying, you know, what kind of 
you know, he obviously hasn't got it, has got it in for women because his wife, he forced her to become a Catholic. I mean, it's a sign, I think, of his intense piety that yeah. he takes it so seriously. And yeah. she's so devoted to him that she will risk the, you know, the displeasure of her family by doing it. And so she, she had, she'd married him just before he goes. And she then, she, she follows him around. She's pregnant, then has a child, then gets pregnant again. So quite, really tough for her as he's moved from hospital to hospital and then post to post. And every time he seems to be recovering, he, he relapses again. And there is a, a key moment where he gets, um, he, he's at a place called Roos, which is just south of the Humber. And there's a wood and he goes with Edith into this wood and it's spring and it's spectacularly beautiful. And he's lying, you know, he, still haunted by the prospect. Of, I think this is 1917. So still haunted by the prospect that he, he will probably have to go back to the front. But it is breathtakingly beautiful. It's English spring. It's everything that, that he would dream of. And Edith dances for him. And he clings to the memory of this. And he constructs a story um, about a mortal, Beren, and an elf, an elvish princess. And elves are immortal. And it's about the love between the mortal and the immortal. And in due course, the, the immortal abandons her immortality and they, they, they marry and have a kind of short life together. And, you know, it's, this is a story that Tolkien writes again and again and again over the course of his life. And when in due course they die on the tombstone that Dominic prevented me from seeing, uh, Tolkien, oh, describes him, now. Tolkien describes himself as Beren and Edith as Luthien. And it's yeah. it's obviously the kind of it's the story that more than any other is the wellspring of his his emotional life, and it's it's framed in in you know the, 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 these ancient languages, these ancient epics, but it's clearly also massively bred of the war. And Tolkien, as the person who is who probably will die, I mean, it's 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 so painful. Yeah, it's the kind of you thing know, that people would so you can imagine people sniggering at or sneering at. But actually, it's very it's very moving when you read, you know, the yeah. way he writes about it and the fact that it's chiselled on their tombstones and so on. It obviously means an enormous amount, you would assume, to him, but also to her. I would say it's the emotional heart. I mean, because it's yeah. also something that then reappears in Lord of the Rings with Aragorn. The the, the well, people the tell the story, don't they? They yeah. they they're conscious of it as a story. So Arwen also is an elf who's immortal yeah. and Aragorn's immortal. So it's it's obviously um this idea of of a man who is doomed to die in love with someone who will be immortal is yeah. absolutely the heart of it. Anyway, Tolkien Tolkien doesn't die. No, he doesn't. Well it's about this point, Tom, that he starts he's he's scribbling away at his stories. Not the stories that most people now associate with Tolkien, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, but he's he's creating this whole um world of legend these myths and folk tales and so on that he's scribbling as he says himself you know in, in huts full of blasphemy and smut so in other words in these sort of um these sort of jerry-built huts where soldiers are recuperating he is scribbling on some piece of paper the sort of stories that he was thinking about before the war except that now they are so they are doom laden and there's this sort of the preoccupation with death and with immortality and with sort of cities that are doomed to be the, so the first story he writes, the fall of Gondolin, uh, 1917, which you can now buy, which is posthumously published. That's about a city that is attacked by these kind of great sort of mechanical dragons and falls inevitably. And there's this sort of 
pessimism and and sort of despair at the heart of the story. And you can absolutely this is a response to the to the First World War. You wouldn't have got it without William Morris and the High Victorians and the sort of medievalism of that period. But you also wouldn't have got it, I think, without the experience of the trenches and the Western Front. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the first it's the first piece of writing, isn't it, where you can see uh, the horrors of mechanized warfare being recalibrated and kind of given the appearance of dragons and balrogs and all these yeah. kind of monsters. Um, yeah. And it's very powerful. Uh, but I think also what's incredibly important for understanding Tolkien's um, literary direction, but I think also the appeal that he has, ha- he has held certainly for, for English readers is that he is consciously trying to, to fill what he sees as a gap so he's been reading in, in Finnish literature, and he's incredibly impressed by the antiquity of these Finnish tales. And he, he reads in uh, Norse epic, Icelandic epic. Again, he's, he's very, very impressed at the, the way that these ancient stories and legends have survived. And he, he is terribly upset that England doesn't have anything really comparable, perhaps Beowulf, yeah. perhaps a few other poems, but, but not much else. Um, and he blames the Norman conquest for this. So he, he is. He it's always is, the French who are the villains, Tom. Isn't well, it? he he he's he's so he has very kind of very very dogmatic <laughs> opinion. So he's very keen on Finnish, but hates French. He he goes to Paris and complain. You know, you talked about the um, talking about the officers' mess, but he views um, Paris in a very similar way. He complains about the vulgarity and the jabber and the spitting and the indecency. That's so, what I think about very, Paris. <laughs> very, very very Sandbrook, but he goes on about the Norman Conquest in the way that 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 people who are upset about Britain leaving the EU go on about the Brexit vote. It's the great <laughs> trauma. It's the great horror. And he experiences it as vividly and viscerally as someone today might might kind of uh, <laughs> lament Brexit. Um, and so he, he sets himself the task of reconstructing the legends and the stories that England might have had. Yes. And, and it's important to say, Tom, he doesn't do this from nowhere. No. He's so immersed in the languages and the history of language that he's picking up these tiny fragments, Absolutely. isn't he? And, and so that's where the, um, the Eärendil, the one that we, we read just before, comes from. That, that for Tolkien, it's the language that comes first, and then he has to decide, you know, yeah. what do these words mean? What do these names mean? Where are they coming from? And that becomes his kind of, his, his great mission. And his particular fe- his feeling is is that it's not just that um, England has lost its mythology, but it's also that that England is, and I think to a degree that probably most people would find risible, except that Tolkien believes and feels it so strongly that he has indeed achieved what he set out to do, which is astonishing, and create this mythology. But he feels that England was sacred to a kind of people who haunt the mythologies of the North, this idea that there were there was a people who lived in these lands that were somehow higher than mortal humans, to whom originally he gives the name of gnomes. Yes, it's very unfortunate. Do you know the garden gnome, Tom, was not invented until the late 1930s. <laughs> so when Tolkien well. first calls them the gnomes, that's not a ludicrous and, and no, sort of... No, but it does seem uh, very uh, funny. I mean, now it's completely ludicrous that he calls them the gnomes, but that's only because we think of Victor Meldrew ordering 290 garden gnomes or whatever it was and one foot in the grave. But um, uh, they, they are basically elves, aren't they? They're, they are, they're, they, yeah. they're kind of a bit like... There's an, an element of the angel 
about the elves, don't you think, with for Tolkien? Uh, so in the in the medieval literature and the Norse literature, elves are much more ambivalent figures. They're quite dangerous. They're quite dark, they can aren't be they? Quite yeah. dark. So we've recorded an episode um, about Norse sorcery, Viking sorcery that will be going out, and elves are kind of part of this this strange world that include dwarves as well. Um, that that lived beyond the limits of the human in the, in the Viking world. So elves are clearly coming from that. And what Tolkien hates about the role that elves and fairies and all that kind of stuff plays in England is that they've been prettified and and kind yeah. of diminished. And they're they're kids they're, figures, aren't they? They're, they're kids they're, figures. The kind of thing that Conan Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, the girls, yeah. the fairies in the garden. He doesn't like. He hates that. And so he wants to kind of revive that. And he comes to feel basically that. England was the great home of the elves. <laughs> yeah. And I know I can hear people who hate Tolkien kind of laughing at this. But I think it, it, it you know, he's coming to this idea f- at coming out of the war. And I think it matters terribly to him. And that the measure of, of how deeply he feels it is precisely the kind of emotional heft that this world comes to carry, not just for Tolkien, but for millions of people and not just living in England either across the world. This thing about myth and the obsession with myth, with legend, with kind of folk tales, it's not just a legacy of the kind of late Victorian period, but also you see it all everywhere in the interwar um, culture. So, I mean, it seems odd to put Tolkien, and to some listeners it will seem almost blasphemous to put Tolkien with these writers, but let's think about um, uh, William Butler Yeats in Ireland, or indeed James Joyce taking you know who's interested fascinated by myths and legends and 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 new ways of working on them or t.s Eliot, you know another writer i mean you you know you mentioned Eliot before um somebody who coming out of the first world war is thinking about you know picking up fragments from the sort of shattered remains of western civilization to try to make something new i mean tolkien is okay he might seem a million miles away but I think there are definite kind of correspondences there. Even if you, even and even if you hate Tolkien, um, he's he's clearly part of the same milieu in a way. So maybe come to Eliot later when when we look at the um, the experience of the Second World War, because I think there are really interesting uh, and perhaps overt parallels there. But just on the on the topic of Joyce, who you'd say Ulysses is as different a novel as you could imagine to Lord of the Rings, except yeah. that both of them, both Joyce and Tolkien, in their unbelievably different ways, are obsessed by language. So when Tolkien, at the end of the war, Tolkien gets a job working um, on, uh, on on the on the uh, dictionary, so he becomes a lex- lexicographer. And he does reached, W, doesn't he? The Oxford English he does dictionary. W A. <laughs> So he does w, one not even w. and uh, one <laughs> and all kinds of things like that. Um, and then he gets a job at Leeds and then That's he gets right, a job yeah. at Oxford. And this is the, um, the, the Rawlinson and Bosworth professorship. And basically from that point on, you know, he, he stays at Oxford um, and Humphrey Carpenter in his biography says that at this point, his, his life, you know, his, his life stops being interesting. Basically, you know, he just <laughs> leads the life of, a, of an Oxford Don, but all the time Tolkien is thinking about language and is obsessed by it. And I think that, so if you wanted to compare, say, a, a, a chapter from Lord of the Rings with a chapter from Ulysses, you could do it. You could do it. So there is a chapter in um, in Ulysses that, that has the, you know, critics call it the Cyclops. Um, yeah. it's, it's Leopold Bloom, the hero of Ulysses, meets with an Irish nationalist in a pub. And kind of gets into it. the Irish nationalist throws a, a, a glass at him and Bloom leaves. And that's basically the plot. But the whole thing is couched through um, 
various forms of English, starting from the earliest form of Old English and going right the way up to the present day. Joyce is fascinated by the way in which English as a language evolves, and he makes play with this throughout the chapter. In Lord of the Rings, Tolkien has this chapter called The Council of Elrond, where various peoples from kind of different parts of, of, of Middle-earth come and meet. And again, you can exactly gauge kind of how ancient a people they are by the kind of English they use. So the hobbits, yeah. who are representatives of 1920s England, speak in a contemporary form of English. But then you have men, you have dwarves, you have elves. They all come from different periods of history and they all have subtly different forms of English, subtly different forms of vocabulary. And I think that the parallel is perhaps, I think, an intriguing one. The way in yeah. which both Joyce and and Tolkien in their very, very different ways are, are are using language to express quite important truths, I think, about the instability of things. Because if language is constantly evolving, then it means that people can be left behind. It's interesting, isn't it? But I think the difference is that uh, Joyce is well known in the 1920s. I mean, this is not the difference, it's a difference. And Tolkien is is completely and utterly obscure. So all the work he's doing on his languages and his his sort of imagined worlds and things, it's a bit like the equivalent of a train set in an attic. I mean, he <laughs> yes. does it He does it when he comes home. You can imagine yeah. Edith saying, what are we doing tonight? And he says, well, I'm writing about the gnomes again. You well, know, it's very, it's very highbrow <laughs> kind of battle reenacting, isn't it? It it's is. It's kind of it is. dressing up in the Civil War uniform or something. And he takes it tremendously seriously. Um, he has a new friend who he meets in, I think, 1926, called C.S. Lewis, who is a like-minded, because he's lost all but one of his friends yeah, um, well, he's, in the First he has World War. tragic I mean, line, doesn't he, that by 1918, I had lost all but one of my closest friends. Exactly. So he's got one left, and he doesn't actually see him very much or get on with him very well anymore. Because he's um, a Methodist headmaster, isn't he? He becomes a headmaster, exactly, in Somerset or something school. like that, I think. Yeah. Um, so, so Tolkien's there in Oxford. He meets this big, ebullient Ulsterman, Called C.S. Lewis, who obviously went to very good school, Tom, as you will, as you will know, top, absolutely top school, um, like the very best podcasters. And um, Lewis is is interested in language too, and he's interested in Norse myths, and he's interested in Anglo-Saxons, and all of that kind of stuff. And they have they meet, they go to the pub, and they read each other stuff, and they have a tremendous time. But Tolkien. There's no reason to think he's ever going to be, apart from his academic work and his interest in Beowulf and th these kinds of things, there's no reason to think that he's ever going to be a public figure of any kind. And then the famous story is that basically, because he's not very well paid and he's hard up, he's marking, you know, school certificate exam papers in the summer. And the story goes, it's about 1930. One day, um, he's completely bored. You can imagine the scene, you know, mid afternoon, another paper, and he, there's a blank page in one of the, in one of the sort of the scripts, and he scribbles in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And then he doesn't know what to do with it. It's the he knows it's the beginning of a story, but he doesn't know what. Well, what a note. What a note. The rest, Dominic. the rest <laughs> is. It's history. <laughs> the rest, well, the rest is is history. Tolkien episode part two, I think. Yes, we don't do that as a sign off as much as we yeah. should, you know. No, we don't. <laughs> so I think we should uh, draw a line there under today's episode, and then come back uh, in our next episode. Look at the Hobbit. Look at the Lord yeah. of the Rings. Look at elves. We've got them. Elves. We've got them. Not another <laughs> elf, which C.S. Lewis didn't <laughs> say, did he? No, and that will have to be that will have That's to be bleeped. <laughs> that will. <laughs> I can't believe you. I can't believe you went there. <laughs> Oh, That's the so disrespectful. Story. I, apocryphal story. 
um <laughs> anyway so we will we'll we'll see you next time um and uh to mordor to mordor bye-bye Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.